Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here to hear news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred. That great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. Today we've got a double special here. We're returning to our previous schedule of ghost stories and extending it a little bit. Uh, a few other goodies mixed in today. Uh, we're featuring a show by NPR that is Never Paid Radio, the other NPR group from Prescott, Arizona. Uh, first piece we're going to play from them is called The Depot, about a man who remembers a woman from his past through a, well, a rather moving painting. Uh, we'll be following this up with another by Never Paid Radio. And then one from our friends at the Wireless Theater Company, Dulce S. Decorum Ask Pro Patria Morti, if I get it right. And that one's a tribute to World War One with some ghosts of its own. Now, for the folks that call themselves the other NPR, here is The Depot. Did you find what you were looking for? I picked up some great gifts. Look at this. Oh, that's great. For Jamie? Yeah, don't you think she'll love it? It's terrific. Hey, there's that new sandwich shop that just opened. Want to have some lunch? Sure. Sounds great. Did you hear from Bill? Yeah, they'll be leaving on Thursday. Their flight arrives at 4.15, and then they'll head out Sunday to stay with Jan and Daryl for the holidays. Great. You know, we might want to have dinner out that first night. I was thinking it would be easier and less confusing just, you know, to be able to visit. Craig? 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 Craig, I thought you were lost. You were here and then... Craig, are you all right? I'm sorry. I, uh... I just passed this picture and... uh... Craig, what's the matter? This painting. I have to ask where it was painted. Can I help you, sir? Craig, are you okay? Yes, just a second, Donna. I, uh, I need to ask. Yes, sir, that painting in your gallery window? Uh, the depot? Yes, could you tell me anything about it? Well, it's painted by a gentleman in Flagstaff, Arizona. It's an original. It's it's not a print, and, uh, well, that's about it. That's the depot at the Grand Canyon, isn't it? I'm not sure, sir. It it could be. Craig, what is it? I... I'm not sure. I was walking past the gallery when I saw it in the window, and I just froze in my tracks. It was like I was hit by something. Well, it is a rather stunning painting, sir. Well, thank you, anyway. Don't mention it, sir. Oh, one more thing. Sir? The artist's name? Um, no, it's right here. Um, William Ray. William Ray. Thank you for your time. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, honey. I don't know what came over me. I've never seen you like that. I never felt like that. Still want some lunch? Sure. I'll have the tuna salad on whole wheat... And does it come with any choice other than fries or potato salad? You can have cottage cheese. That'll be fine. I'll have a Reuben and a Coke, please. And would you like anything to drink, ma'am? Iced tea. Still thinking about that painting? Yeah, I can't get it out of my head. About the girl? I, I think that must be it. What was her name? Teresa. Teresa, that's right. 
I'm sorry, Craig. It's in the past. It's part of your life. You can't forget it completely. It was just that painting. So, so realistic. That has to be the same train depot. Wow. I, I, I saw it and wham. There's a lot of those old depots that look alike. But that vantage point. It was like I last saw it. I mean, it looked like it was painted from the exact point that I was standing when I last saw her. You were the last one to see her? Yes. She was running off into the distance. She was so excited. You know, she had never seen it snow before, and there we were in Arizona at the Grand Canyon with snowflakes as big as tennis balls, falling so fast you couldn't see 200 feet. Here's your drinks. Thanks. And they never found her? No. I can't believe it. Oh, we searched. They called in a special search and rescue team and made a valiant effort. But they never found her. Not a trace. And her parents? They were crushed. Their only daughter, just a kid. It was our second year in college. They never really blamed me, but I don't think they ever really forgave me. It wasn't your fault, Craig. She was my girlfriend. The trip to the canyon was my idea, and I let her get out of my sight. I spent a week up there, walking around and searching. I even went back time after time, hoping to find some trace of her. All I could see was her running off into the distance, the snow falling hard everywhere. What was she running for? I don't know for sure, just having fun, I guess. She said, come on, Craig. Come on, Craig. Teresa, wait. I've got to get my boots on. Teresa, give me a second. Then the train came in and stopped. By the time I was able to get my boots on and get around the train, she was gone. Can I get you anything else? What? We're fine, thanks. Oh, no. No, thank you. So. I know it's hard for you to talk about it. Well, it'll be nice seeing Bill and Janice again. Yeah. I'll bet the kids have really grown. Yeah. Bill says uh, Laura is playing soccer this year. Doesn't seem possible. She was just a baby. She was a baby 13 years ago. Where does the time go? Where does anything go? It just goes. Well, do you have any more shopping to do? Yeah, I wanted to look in the bookstore for a bit. We have to pick up Scott after football practice, and I've got to stop at the grocery store on the way home. Yeah. I'm not too hungry. How's your sandwich? It was great. Look, I've got to go to the restroom. Finish up and I'll meet you at the bookstore. I don't want to rush you, but... I know. Go ahead. See you at the bookstore. Excuse me. Yes, ma'am. Could you page someone for me? Sure. Name? Have Craig meet his wife at the checkout. Craig? Customer Craig, could you meet your wife at the checkout counter? Customer Craig, could you meet your wife at the checkout counter? Thank you. Thanks. Come on, Craig. It's really getting late. Oh, Debbie, is that you? 
Oh, Gail, how are you doing? Oh, just trying to get some last-minute shopping out of the way. And you? Well, I'm trying to find Greg. You haven't seen a lost husband wandering about, have you? As a matter of fact, I thought I saw him down the block. Really? Yeah. At that art gallery? Thanks. Craig! Craig, I've been waiting at the bookstore for 20 minutes looking for you. What? Oh, Debbie, there you are. Craig, what are you doing? Look. Yes, I know. It's the depot. No, look. Look right there. Craig, it's a painting of a train depot. I saw it. You didn't see this. Look at the corner of the building right there. A woman? Yes, a woman. You can hardly make her out. She wasn't there before. Oh, come on, Craig. Stop it. We have to get going. Scott's practice is almost over. I tell you, she wasn't there before. Look, you can hardly make her out the way the snow is painted all over the picture. You just didn't notice her. I would her. have noticed her, because that's the last place I saw her, Debbie. That's the first place I looked when I saw the painting. She wasn't there. Greg, are you coming with me or not? I've got to go and pick up our son. And we play Westmont next Friday. Can you guys make the game? Couldn't miss it for the world. Did your dad tell you that Aunt Janice and Uncle Bill are coming out just before the holidays? They bring in Laura. I'm sure they're not going to leave her home. Great. What's wrong? She's a brat. You haven't seen her in years. I'm sure she's changed. Yeah, changed into a bigger brat. Can you pass the potatoes? Dad? Craig. Uh, what? Your son's asking for the potatoes. Yeah, Dad, can you pass the potatoes? Oh, sure. Sure, Scott, I'm sorry. Jeez, Dad. Rangoon Base, come in. Scott, that's not polite. Well, he's been kind of out of it all night. I'm sorry, son. I've had some things on my mind. You're right. Excuse me, I'm not feeling well. I I think I'm going to go lie down. Dad? Yeah? You didn't forget about scout meeting tomorrow morning, did you? Oh, uh, no, no, I didn't. We're cooking breakfast, right? Yeah, pancakes and sausage and bacon. For the food drive, right? Right. We're supposed to be there at 6.30. You're on, Scott. Breakfast at 0630. See you then. Night, Deb. Mr. Moyer? Oh, Debbie, Scott. Great, you're here. Can you keep an eye on Scott? I, um... Sure, sure. You okay? I'm not sure. Where's Craig? I don't know. Is everything okay? I don't know. We woke up this morning and Craig was gone. Was he driving the little red car? Yes, it was gone. Well, I think I passed it over on Main Street. Main? Yeah, over by that new sandwich shop. You know, next to the art gallery. Scott, stay here. I'll be right back. No, Mom, I want to come. No, Scott. Mom, I'm 16. If something's happened to Dad, I want to be there. Okay, okay, Scott, let's go. So, what's up with Dad? It's about this girl he used to know. He has a girlfriend? No, Scott, not that. This was a girlfriend he knew in college. Yeah, and? And I don't know. It's confusing. Adults are confusing. 
Well, this old girlfriend of your father's disappeared one day when they were on a trip together. Did they find her? No. We never found her or any trace of what happened to her. And they think Dad did her in? No, Scott. That's nothing like that. Your father was the last one to see her, but he was never thought of as a suspect. They were with a group of college students who went up to the Grand Canyon on a weekend trip. She got separated from the group and disappeared. Sounds creepy. Well, apparently it was heavy snow and real hard to see. They have no idea what happened. She could have fallen, she could have gotten lost and wandered into the wilderness. There's a ton of things that could have happened. Look, there's Dad's car. Do you see him? No, but he was here yesterday, twice. What? Never mind, you stay here. I'm going round back to see if I can find him. Craig? Craig, are you there? Craig? Craig? Craig, are you there? Was he there? No. No, he wasn't. He's not here. He has to be. He knew about the breakfast and everything. He wouldn't just forget about it. Dad? Come on, Scott. We'd better go to the police station. You think something's wrong? You think something bad happened, don't you? I don't know what to think, Scott. Well, maybe he was supposed to meet the guy from the gallery here, you know, early. Maybe he was buying a surprise gift for you. I don't think so, Scott. You said he was looking at a painting. Maybe he was going to buy it. No. No, it's still here. Which one? The one of the train depot in the snow. This one? Yes, that's the one. There's no snow. What? There's no snow. Just a train depot and some people. What? What are you talking about? The train depot right here. There's just the depot and two people holding hands, walking around the corner. Oh my god! You're right! Two people! Two people holding hands and walking around the corner. Oh, Craig. You found her. You finally found her. And that was The Depot by Never Paid Radio, neverpaidradio.com. They've got a double feature today. The second one we're going to play from them is called Can't You See the Possibilities? What happens to a group of young guys where they stumble across the power to turn themselves invisible, but it does not have exactly the uh, results that they had intended for. Uh, kind of a dark little tale in its own little way. Enjoy Can't You See the Possibilities? You've walked this alley before, but it never seems so long. For whatever reason, each inch of pathway seems longer, darker, colder. You know it's the way you've always gone, but this time you're not getting any closer to your destination. Like the web of a tunnel spider, the darkness envelops you. 
The stench of the alley hangs heavy around you like a damp cloak. You long for your own home, the comfort of a fireplace, a familiar smile. In the darkness you hear the faint sound of a carnival. It reminds you that somewhere life is light, happy, and fun. But in the alley the music is different. It becomes a ghoulish accompaniment to the frantic patter of rats jumping back into the darkness as they evade your ever uncertain approach. Ahead lies the end of the alley. There's a barricade with a sign attached. A distant flash of lightning illuminates it. It says, Dead End. You have finally reached your destination. You've reached Nightmare Alley. Welcome to Nightmare Alley. Tonight, we meet three young people who have uncovered the ultimate discovery of the 21st century. However, their misuse of it has led them to a place far from fame. They await us in Can't You See the Possibilities? And all three of them have paid their passage tonight with every fiber of their soul as they enter Nightmare Alley. Arlene, over here, we need help bad. I think Jimmy's in real trouble. I can't find Dave. Please, Arlene, help. I... Arlene. At first, it was hard convincing anyone of a story. Well, at first, I wasn't, I wasn't sure I believed, I believed in myself, myself, but I knew I wasn't crazy. <laughs> at least that's, that's what, what I kept, kept telling myself. Come on, Joe, you don't expect me to believe that crap, do you? Now look, Jim, I don't really care if you do or not. I'm telling you, it's for real. Invisible? Yeah, invisible, like you can't see them. Bull. That is just bull. You must think I'm stupid. Look, it was bound to happen sooner or later. I mean, somebody had to discover how to become invisible. Look at all the things they've done in the last few years. Invisible. Old man Thompson. Swear to Buddha. Look, I was out back working on the pickup when I seen him. You said he was invisible. Well, just wait a damn minute, will ya? Okay, fine. He wasn't invisible just yet, okay? All right, go on. He walks up to his shop, then he stops. You know, he's looking around like there was something going on, you know? Go ahead. So he's looking around, and he kind of ducks inside. Then the door closes, and then a few seconds later, my radio gets a bunch of static. So I go into the cab, and I try to adjust the dial, and that's just when I saw it. Saw what? I'm not sure how to explain it. It's kind of like somebody was holding a big sparkler in the shop window. You know what I mean? Not really. You know, them sparklers like on the 4th of July. I guess. You guess? What are you, a retard or something? I'm retarded enough to kick your butt, you zipperhead. Hey, hey. Okay. Now listen, you know, I watch for a while, and all of a sudden I see a kind of a green glow. No, 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 it wasn't a glow. It was like a flickering green ball of light with this fog all around it. And you saw this through the door? No, I told you he shut the door. Then you must got x-ray vision, right? 
Look, Jim, I saw it through the window of the shop. It faces my backyard, for Christ's sakes. Now, do you want to listen or not? I don't know. It, it sounds like you up and went Looney Tunes on me. Well, I thought the same myself, but I haven't even told you the really weird part yet. Oh, no? No. I'm not sure if I should go on. And I'm beginning to think that you shouldn't. I mean, we're buddies and all that, but I don't like the idea of, you know, you like going crackers on me. Okay, listen. I, I gotta tell someone. Well, I don't know. Go ahead. Just don't expect me to believe everything, all right? All right. No, listen, I'll take you there. No, 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 no. That's okay. That somehow don't make me feel any better about all this. Well, then listen, will ya? All right, so I was watching, and about then, the static on my radio clears up, and the door to the shop opens. Yeah? And I don't see nothing. Yeah? So? Don't you get it? Get what? What's this, some kind of a knock-knock joke? No, he, he was right there, except I can't see him. Then how'd you know he was there? Because he walked out of the shop, and I could hear his footsteps on the cement walkway. The, the went clip and then the little squeak that right boot always made it his that clip squeak clip squeak clip squeak Mr. Squeaky Boot huh look I've known him since I was just a little kid he's the weirdo neighbor every kid is afraid of you know the kind of space cadet in the striped jumpsuit with the engineer boots and one of those boots always squeaked I'm telling you it's the kind of stuff you hear about in ghost stories okay so you're watching what you don't believe it do you I'm trying to, okay? I mean, I don't know how else to say it. You're watching what? Nothing? He's there, I tell you. Okay, okay, okay. So you're watching the squeak, okay? No, I mean, yeah, up until that time. Then it stops. And it just kind of stands still. Real quiet. Yeah? Well, it was kind of like it was waiting to see if I was going to say something. You know, like, like maybe he wasn't sure if I could see him or not. Like he was kind of testing his invisibleness. His invisibleness? Well, I don't know what you'd call it. His, his, his whatever, clearness. Yeah, that seems crystal clear to me. <laughs> jerk, you're just a big butthead jerk, that's all. <laughs> okay, 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 I'm sorry. It was just a little too easy, that's all. All right, so after a while, I'm sitting in the truck. And I can't take my eyes off the area where I heard the last squeak come from. And then it starts out again. Only real slow and kind of quiet, you know? Like he must have known he was making this noise. So I'm watching this emptiness and listening as hard as I can. And it gets quieter. Like he's moving away? No, no, that's what I thought at first, but it wasn't. The clip part stopped altogether, but I could still hear the squeak. It was softer, but I could still hear it. He went back into the shop? No, no, listen. He stepped off the cement walkway and onto the grass. You heard this. No, it's what I didn't hear that made me tilt my head to try to hear better. And that's when I saw the grass move. The grass move? Yeah, footsteps on the grass. And this real soft kind of grass smooching under feet sound with a muffled squeak. Oh, crap, man, I don't like this. Oh, you think I did? Oh. I didn't know whether to scream or go blind, so I just sat there. Then I tried to pretend I wasn't looking that way, you know? Yeah. Like I was just staring off trying to tune in the radio. So... So what happened? Well, I could still make out the grass moving, uh -huh. and it came right up to the fence and stopped. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to take off running, but I think <laughs> I was too scared, so... <laughs> there he stood, and I knew...
knew he was watching me. I could feel it, you know? Like an electric charge that runs down the backbone and ends up in your groin. I was starting to shake, that uncontrollable shake you get when you get real wet and cold. Yeah, yeah, like when we went skinny dipping at Marsh Lake that October in the rain. Yeah, like that. <laughs> so I'm trying to tell myself that this ain't happening. Like, I'm going to get up laughing at some dumb dream. And then I hear it start again. The footsteps turn and go off toward the house. Only he must have been looking back at me. Because as he gets close to the back porch, the dog's water dish goes sailing across the lawn, you know, like he kicked it by accident. Oh, crap, man. You saw this? Have you been listening or what? I'm telling you, it's the God's honest truth. Old man Thompson turned himself invisible. That's, like, creepy, you know? I, I, why do you suppose he'd do that? I don't know. Maybe he likes to wander around and look in windows at night. <laughs> he wouldn't have to wait until night now. <laughs> no kidding. Hey, maybe he wants to sneak into the girls' locker room at the high school. <laughs> yeah, well, that'd be cool. Or or what about going down to the girlies' show on the Stafford Street? Well, he could do that without being invisible, buddy. Oh, yeah, I guess I uh, suppose he could. I wish we could. You can't think of anything better to do? If you couldn't be seen? Well, I, I guess the locker room thing sounds pretty good. No, stupid. I mean, like, boosting stuff. Shoplifting? Man, you could steal stuff all day long and never be seen. Yeah, or you could sneak into all the shows and all the ball games and... All, all the, the banks. And all the... Banks? And all the banks! So what are we waiting for? Old man Thompson. Yeah, no, 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 no. We're going to go over there and get us a shot of invisibleness for ourselves. Hi, guys. What's going down? Hey, we're going to go to invisible so we can rob banks. What? Shut up, you idiot. What kind of stuff are you guys smoking? No, nothing. <laughs> uh, Joe's neighbor has this machine that... I said uh, shut up, Jim. <laughs> What are you boys talking about? No, 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 Marlene, it's true. Jim, Jim, <laughs> can it, would you? Hey, no, listen, I mean, if, if we get a shot of invisibleness, we need some help. Jim? We need someone to drive us around, you know? You boys are nuts. <laughs> I'm leaving. No, no, Marlene, wait. Jim's right. Right out of his head. See ya. Hey, Marlene, now, sit down and listen. So Marlene sat down, and we told her our story and our plan. Now, it took some talking, and she wasn't too sure she wanted to believe it until we took her to the alley behind old man Thompson's place, and we sat and we waited. And after a bit, we saw the shop door open and then close. That was weird. But in a bit, the sparks began, and the same noise, and then the green, foggy glow. And in a moment, the door opened, and... There he is. Shh, he'll hear us. Crap, man, that shop was empty. I know it was. Where did he come from? He walked in just a minute ago. But I didn't see him. That's the point. Oh, this is creepy. For once, you guys are on to something. You bet. And we're going to have so much money, we won't know what to do with it. Yeah, we're, we're going to be gazillionaires. So, so how are we going to do this? All right, it'll be easy. Listen, this is what we'll do. So a plan was formed. And I must say it wasn't too bad. We found that by taking a big canvas sack through old man Thompson's invisible machine, we could use it to put the money in, and the money couldn't be seen. And we'd wait until just before closing, enter the bank, and just as the cashiers were taking their money out of the drawers, Joe would pick up something off the counter, you know, like a coffee cup, 
walk it around like it was floating and catch all the cashier's attention. And then as they stood there watching the floating coffee cup and screaming, I would empty out the cash drawers. It was cool, man. Then when the cops would come and search around, we'd just walk out the door. We pulled our little stunt for a couple weeks, moving from bank to bank to grocery store to just about every place you can think of. The newspapers were having a field day with the headlines of the ghost robberies. But nobody was laughing too loud. They were all pretty scared. So we stashed the money in the bed of my pickup truck under an old tarp. And after we decided we had enough, we thought we'd move on to some bigger digs. Hey, do you think we ought to turn visible for a while? No, no. We've been seen, you know, in and about for the last week. Nobody suspects anything. Look, you guys stay invisible just a few more days. I'll drive us up to Lakemont. They've got bigger and richer banks up there. Then we'll stash the dough and come back, and you can turn visible again. Hey, come on, come on, Jim, jump in. Let's hey, head out. I got gotcha. you. Hey, let's go. We'll never have to work in our entire life. <laughs> as long as old man Thompson don't move. Hey, you think he's on to us? No way. He never took the paper, and he don't have a TV. Oh, if he, he was on to us, we'd know by now. Yeah. Oh, I saw him last night at the liquor store, and uh, he didn't say a thing. In fact, he didn't even look at it. So we took the East River route up through the pass as the excitement increased with every turn. Lake Mount was just a few miles further when all of a sudden... Look out, Marlene! Oh, my God! What? Oh, oh God! What? I... Oh, no! Marlene... was thrown out of the truck when it rolled over. I can feel Jimmy going beside me. I don't think he's doing too good. Joe? Jim? Where, where are you? Are, are you guys all right? Lady! Lady! Marlene, over here. I need help, bad. I think Jimmy's in real trouble. Come over here this way. Joe? Jim? Come on, boys. Don't fool around. I'm hurt. I need your help. Joe, this ain't no time for jokes. I'm scared. Hey, are you all right? Hey, I'm sorry. I I hit a deer, and I couldn't get any farther off the road. Are you all right, lady? I I guess so. Can can you help me out? I've I've called the police for my radio. They should be here. Uh, What is this? Money? I gotta get out of here. No, you better sit down. I, I think you're in shock. You look a little hurt. You hit your head a pretty good walk, too. No, no. You, you've got to help me find my friends. We, we've got to get out of here. Friends? And Jimmy and Joe, we, we was headed up to Lakemont. We swerved to miss your car. Well, where'd all this money come from? I've never seen so much money laid everywhere. Jimmy, Joe, you've got to help me find them. Lady, I saw your pickup coming at me. You were alone. No, no. Jimmy and Joe, front seat with, with me. Look, lady, just relax, okay? Here, this will be better. Let me look at your head. Oh, my God, is she going to be all right? I think so. Uh, wait here, I've got a first aid kit in the car. How do you feel, honey? I need to find my friends. Well, look, you just wait here, hon. We're going to take care of you first. She seems to be worried about her friends. You're going to be all right, gal. I think she's in shock. She didn't have any friends. I saw her come around the corner. There was no one in the truck except her. Uh, how is she? 
I think she'll be all right. Anyone else hurt? Uh, no, she was all alone. I was standing beside my car. I hit a deer. Couldn't get any farther off the road. Uh, she just came around the corner and wham. you you got to find Jimmy and Joe. She seems to be worried about her friend. She was all alone in the cab. I think she was singing to herself. I saw my car slammed on the brakes, so the rest is history. And no one else following her? No, sir. She rolled once, maybe twice, then stopped. I... I got over here as soon as I could. She didn't look that bad, but she must have one heck of a concussion. Delirious, you know, calling out for her friends that weren't there. Uh, have an ambulance on the way. This money, uh, this must have come out of the pickup when it rolled over. I've never seen so much money. Yeah, I got an idea where this money may have come from. Hold on to her. I'll be right back. You've got to help Jimmy and Joe. They must be hurt real bad. Okay, fine. Now let's uh, just try and stay calm. Look, honey, you're going to be all right. You just lay still. She hit her head real bad. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, now we're going to take care of you. Jimmy and Joe, uh, yeah, we'll take care of Jimmy and Joe, too. Don't worry. Jimmy and Joe, where are they? All in her head. She was alone. You're going to be all right, honey. So the woman at the accident was right. I was okay, eventually. The hospital released me the next day, but the, the police kept a hold on me for much longer. They were able to match some of the money to the banks, and the rest was enough to keep me behind bars for two years. So now I'm free. I've paid my price to society. Well, that's not exactly true. I'm out of jail, but I'm far from being free. You see, I spend a lot of time walking in the woods. The, the area where I crashed the pickup. You see, no, nobody ever believed me about Jimmy and Joe. No, nobody ever looked for them. Not that they could have seen them anyway, but nobody ever came back out here looking for them, except me. Now, two years later, I, I keep hoping to find some kind of a sign. Don't ask me what I'm looking for. I, I don't know, just something, anything, just to put my mind at ease that they didn't suffer too long. They were my, my friends, friends, you know. Look, we screwed up, but they didn't deserve that. Whatever that was. I didn't deserve to just lay there until... I'm sorry. I, I can't think about it too long. Jimmy, Joe, I'm sorry I couldn't get back in time. Forgive me, please. Thank you for listening to Nightmare Alley. Tonight's episode was written and produced by Randy Faulkner and featured the voice talents of Linda Miller, Sean Geralds, and Randy Faulkner. And that was Can't You See the Possibilities? Um, that's our double feature from Never Paid Radio, NeverPaidRadio.com. Randy Faulkner is a guy who seems to be putting that together. Um, good stuff from Prescott, Arizona. Thank you, Randy, for letting us air that. And, you know, I just want to keep on going and stuff one more into our series of ghosts. Um, this is 
Uh, Ghosts in quite a different way, actually. Um, This piece by the Wireless Theater Company really struck me. It's a new work about World War One, and it sort of is toes the line between documentary and audio drama. Um, sort of the legacy of World War One, which we don't tend to think about very much here in America, but uh, obviously over in Britain and Europe, it's still much more uh, part of living history. This is uh, the, the name of this will be very familiar to you if you're a student of poetry. Dulce est the cormes pro patria morti. If I Latin is not as terrible as it probably is. Somber end to our show today, and a story, like I said, with its own share of ghosts. Enjoy this work by Wireless Theatre Company. This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori by Joe Wells. I said to my dad recently, what's all this fuss about the First World War? I mean, it was over 90 years ago. He said 90 years isn't that long ago. His dad's dad was in it, and millions of young boys just like me. It doesn't seem that long ago to me either. I'm Private John Parr and I was the first British soldier killed in the war. I must say, I wasn't expecting to die when I signed up. I thought it was going to be a grand adventure. It was all supposed to be over by Christmas. It says on my gravestone that I was 20, but that's not true. I was 16. I lied. I wasn't the only one who lied. It was a fairly common practice. I left my job as a golf caddy to become a bicycle scout with a Middlesex regiment. I was shot and killed near Mons on 21st of August 1914 while scouting on my bicycle. My war lasted less than one day. It surprised me when they found out that they had a fantastic postal service in those days and men would regularly write home. Here is a part of a letter, written by Private Jack Mudd, four days before he was killed, taking part in the Third Battle of Ypres, known as Passchendaele. He was just 31 when he left his wife Lizzie and their children to go to war. The ground conditions today are atrocious. Many men are up to their knees in slimy, clinging mud. Sometimes it is so bad they would slip under and literally drown. Their cries for help will haunt me for the rest of my life, but we have been instructed that when attacking, on no account should we stop to help our fallen comrades. It is my worst nightmare that I should die in that awful, slimy swamp. I think of you constantly, love. I often take your photo out of my pocket and look at your dear face and think of the times we have had together. Some lovely days, eh, love? When I think again of some of the worry I have caused you, it makes me all the more eager to get home to you, to atone for all the worry and anxious moments you have to put up with. In November, Lizzie received a copy of an army form telling her Jack had been posted missing. His nightmare had come true and his body was never recovered. Reverend Cyril Lomax. I'm Reverend Cyril Lomax. I graduated in history from Oxford and was ordained in 1895. I didn't enter the war immediately as I had a commitment to my parish and had to remain in Blighty but I joined the Durham Light Infantry in July 1916. As a rule, I'm a brute about letter-writing, but not out here. Things are so different. One is so glad to receive a letter, you can have no idea how one longs for the post and how disappointed one feels when there's nothing for one. 
Everybody hates the mud, but we bathe in it, wade in it, sleep in it. Clods of it adorn the most secret recesses of one's clothes, books and papers. I draw for my amusement and my sanity, although I do censor some of my drawings. If I wanted to make you creep, I might have put a realistic foreground of dead Bosch and our own, fallen in every sort of attitude, some half buried by shells, others in the open. But the reality is too ghastly. There's none of the dignity of death, the flies and the rats see to that. The impression left upon one is one of waste. Indeed, the whole country would admirably do as a picture of the material conditions of hell. It's hard to believe it that three million men volunteered to serve in the British Army in the first two years of the war. But there were so many dead and injured that government had to introduce conscription. All men between the age of 19 and not yet 40 would have to serve. Amazingly, the Military Act of 1916 contained categories which were exempt on the grounds of a conscientious objection. 16,000 men applied for exemption. Albert Brocklesby was one of them. He was a Methodist and a devout Christian. When asked to preach a sermon at his local church, this is what he said. Can you imagine Christ? Dressed in army uniform, armed with a machine gun, or bayonet and a German soldier? That picture is impossible, and we all know it. My family received a white feather, the sign of cowardice, but they stood by me. I was arrested and put in prison, where I kept my spirits up by praying and singing in. Along with other objectors, I was taken to France, and before hundreds of other soldiers, we were sentenced to death. I never felt the need of my God more than in that moment. I thank God my prayers were answered, none of us were actually executed. We were sent to a work camp to serve hard labour. 73 objectors died as a result of their punishment. In the House of Commons, Stephen Ginn said, There is one thing that nobody can deny them, that is courage. The most difficult form of courage in the world. The courage of the individual against the crowd. It made us feel we were not alone. I'm five at one old scurf and I knew that the fight was the right thing. After all, the chaplain told me so. I am an artillery observer. It was my job to locate and target the enemy positions. On the 7th of June 1917, at 10 past 3 in the morning, army sappers detonated 91,000 tonnes of high explosives placed under the German front line. It was only one of 19 other massive explosions along the 7 mile front. The explosion could be heard over 100 miles away in London. For 14 hours shells blasted the German positions. Can you imagine the hell those poor fellows must have gone through? I was sent in a no man's land and I can't describe the shapes and colours human bodies can take when they're blown to smithereens. I came across a young German sitting holding a photo. At first I thought he was alive as there was no outward sign that he was in fact dead. The photo looked like my wife, and I felt sick with shame. That was when I made a private pact with God, never to harm another person again. 
I tried to join the ambulance brigade, but they wouldn't let me. So from that moment on, whenever I was aiming the guns, I always made sure they would miss. I never told anyone what I was doing. I could have been hung for it. On the first day of the Somme, there were 60,000 casualties. One third of them were killed. But later on, the tactics changed with the use of more gas attacks. For they had realised that a casualty was more of a drain on resources than a dead man. We thought it was important to bury the dead, although the French didn't bother so much. One we didn't bury was a hand which was left sticking out of the mud. It was known as Farewell Freddy's Hand and was touched for good luck as the men passed over to go over the top. It is hard to believe it now that they could use such awful stuff on fellow human beings. But this is what some of the men said about the gas attacks. First Bombardier Palmer. The faces of our lads, who lay in the open, changed colour and presented a gruesome spectacle. Their faces and hands gradually assumed a blue and green colour and their buttons and metal fittings on their uniforms were all discoloured. Many lay there with their legs drawn up and clutching their throats. And here is a description from Lance Sergeant Elmer Cotton. Propped up against a wall was a dozen, all gassed. Their colours were black, green and blue, their tongues hanging out and eyes staring. One or two were dead and others beyond human aid. Some were coughing up green froth from their lungs. As we advanced, we passed many more men lying in the ditches and gutterways. Shells were bursting all around. My respirator fell to pieces with the continual removal and readjustment. The gas closed my eyes and filled them with matter. And I could not see. I was left lying in the trench with one other gassed man and various wounded beings and corpses and forced to lie and spit, cough and gasp the whole of the day in that awful place. And followed by Lance Corporal Abraham. Although our road was only slightly sunken, it lay at the foot of a gentle slope, and thus acted as a gas trap. Our colonel and medical officer had both been affected by the stuff, and during the morning they were carried away on stretches. The rest of us stayed out there all day, coughing and retching, and gradually going blind. And on the frightening night patrols, 2nd Lieutenant Cooper. 2nd Lieutenant Cooper. I really believe that I am, after all, coward, for I don't like patrolling. Just last week, the battalion who alternate with us here lost three officers and an NCO on this business in front of my trenches. Let me try to picture what it is like. I am asked to take out an officer's patrol of seven men. Our duties to get out to the German listening post, wait for their patrol and scupper it. I choose my favourite corporal, a gentleman, a commercial traveller for the Midland Educational and Civilian Life, and, and my six most intelligent and courageous men. All sentries are informed we are going out, so we shan't be fired on. Magazines are charged to the full, one round in the breach. Bayonets are fixed. My revolver is nicely oiled. Everything is ready. As soon as the dusk is sufficiently dark, 
We get out into the front of the trenches by climbing up onto the parapet and tumbling over as rapidly as possible so as not to be silhouetted against the last traces of the sunset. Out we walk through the barbed wire entanglement zone through which an approaching enemy must climb. But we have a zigzag path through the thirty yards or so of prickly unpleasantness. This path is only known to a few. The night has become horribly dark already. We wriggle along through the long grass for a hundred yards or so and lie and wait and listen. In the German trenches we hear the faint hum of conversation. Nothing is to be heard near us, but there is a very ominous sign. No shots are being fired from the trenches in front of us. No flares are being sent up, and there is no working party out. This points to only one thing, and that is they also have a patrol out. There is no other conclusion. Suddenly, quite close to the corporal and myself, there is a heavy rustling in the long grass in the right. Now, if ever before, I know the meaning of fear. My heart thumps so heavily that they surely must hear it. My face is covered with cold perspiration. My revolver goes back with a sharp click, and my hand trembles. I have no inclination to run away. Quite the reverse, but I have one solitary thought. I am going to kill a man. This, I repeat, over and over again. And the thought makes me miserable, and at the same time joyful. For I shall have accounted for one of those blackguards, even if I go myself. Then, quite abruptly, they change their direction and make off to the right. Where to follow them would be caught in certain disaster. So, with great caution, we come in and breathe again. When we're safely inside the trench, I sit down and cry uncontrollably. There were moments of sanity, though. On Christmas Day, 1914, only five months into the war, the German, French and British troops disobeyed superiors and fraternised with the enemy along two-thirds of the front. This, in a time of war, was punishable by death. We sang Christmas carols, exchanged photos of loved ones, shared rations and played football. Generals on both sides declared this act treasonable and subject to courts-martial. By March 1915, the fraternising movement had been eradicated and the killing machine was put back in full operation. Our moment of sanity was over. Everything is ready. As soon as the dusk is sufficiently dark, we get out into the front of the trenches by climbing up onto the parapet and tumbling over as rapidly as possible so as not to be silhouetted against the last traces of the sunset. Out we walk through the barbed wire entanglement zone through which an approaching enemy must climb. But we have a zigzag path through the thirty yards or so of prickly unpleasantness. This path is only known to a few. The night has become horribly dark already. must have been wonderful for a son to receive a letter from his mother to keep him sane in all that carnage. Mrs. Cooper Clark wrote frequently to her son. My darlings, we were so glad to hear from you. Although your notes contained so little news, 
The convict was the one we chiefly wanted to know that you were safe. My letter was returned to me with missing written in red ink across the envelope. Although it was standard procedure, it was a dreadful shock when it arrived. I couldn't bring myself to accept he may be gone. He was only 18 when he joined as a rifleman. He was just a boy. I was desperate to find out some news of him and wrote to the Rifle Corps, the Red Cross and finally the War Office, all to no avail. Finally, in June, I received confirmation that he had died of dysentery in a German field hospital. My darling boy was dead. Other women, like Joan Williams, wanted to help the war by working in a munitions factory in Chiswick. Her decision was very unusual, as she was upper class and was more used to people working for her. My parents were not at all keen when I told them that I was going to work in a factory. But I stuck to me guns. I was afraid that men would be jealous of the women doing skilled work, but was surprised that I experienced no problems in that regard. I worked on a seven-foot drum and flathe. Over a period of time, I got to know the other girls who worked in the munitions factory and dealt with the explosive TNT. Their bravery, I felt, was most admirable. I was less impressed with some of the language of my fellow workers and attempted to improve their vocabulary to curtail the swearing. When I finished at the factory, I was presented with a tortoiseshell ink pot, which surprised and touched me. I was less impressed with some of the language of my fellow workers and attempted to improve their vocabulary to curtail the swearing. When I finished at the factory, I was presented with a tortoiseshell ink pot, which surprised and touched me. Amazingly, in 1916 they were running out of troops again, so the military service bill was extended to include married men. Men like Private Mowbray Meads, who was 35, and very surprised to find himself in active service. He wrote to his wife. Well, dearest, I know you've been thinking a good deal about me today and wondering how I fared. I thought about you all last evening and pictured what we should have been doing, listening to the bells ringing in Christmas morning. When I woke this morning, my first thoughts were of you and our dear little girls, and I fancied I could see them running down to get their stockings. Well, dears, I can say I had the finest dinner I've had in the army. We had roast pork, potatoes and cabbage, fig pudding, jam roll, Christmas pudding and jelly. Of course, it was all of our own procuring and not army rations. I hope he enjoyed his lunch, as he was wounded soon after. It was serious enough for him to be sent home. He recuperated in Bradford, where he wrote home. I wish there was some sign of an early finish to the war and no such possibility of my again returning, but we should have to prepare ourselves for such an eventuality. The days when we were convinced that the war would be over by Christmas are long gone. I know I am not in a proper shape to go back to the front, but fear I'll have to go. Mowbray was sent back to the front before the first of the German offences of 1919 when he was taken prisoner. 
His wife received a letter telling her that her husband had died in a military hospital from inflammation of the lungs. How sad that they sent him back to the front. An unpleasant Christmas present, Private Archie Surfleet wrote about lice. As soon as you warm up, the blasted lice start to bite like the devil. It's horrible. I often think it's one of the worst things we have to endure out here. At the outbreak of the war, an extraordinary black man named Walter Tull volunteered. He was born in Folkestone, but his father was from Barbados and his mother was a local girl. They had six children together. Sadly, his mother died when he was just seven and his father remarried. Tragically, he died himself just two years later. His stepmother wasn't able to cope with all six children, so Walter and his brother Edward were sent to a Methodist orphanage in Bethnal Green. After finishing school, he was apprenticed as a printer, but was always a talented footballer. He progressed through the amateur leagues to play for the first division club, Tottenham Hotspur. At a time when this was unheard of for a black man, Walter was full of strong character, as he had to endure racist taunts every time he played. He joined the football battalion and they soon realised his leadership qualities as he was promoted to sergeant. In July 1916, he took part in the Major Somme Offensive, after which he was found to be suffering from acute mania, a condition now known as post-traumatic stress disorder. He was sent home to recuperate, during which time he was recommended for officer training. This was an unprecedented decision as army regulations forbade black people from becoming officers. He must have been exceedingly well thought of by his superiors. Lieutenant Walter Tull, now the first black officer in the British Army, was sent to Italy where he was mentioned in the dispatches by Major General Sidney Lawford. For gallantry and coolness while leading his company of 26 men on a raiding party to cross the river Piave into enemy territory, and bringing them all back unharmed, it is recommended he receive the military cross. Later, he returned to northern France, where he was shot in the neck and killed in action. He was such a popular officer that many valiant attempts were made by men to retrieve his body while still under fire. Sadly, despite their efforts, his body was never found. During the course of the war, there were many soldiers who wrote poetry to express their feelings. Rupert Brooke was one of them. He was commissioned into the Royal Naval Division, and when sailing, he developed septicemia from mosquito bite. He died on a hospital ship off the Greek island of Skyros, and was buried in an olive grove on the island. It's strangely ironic that he should be buried in such a beautiful place when he died taking part in such an obscene war. His poetry was very optimistic in the early days of the war. Here is a brief extract of one of them. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Later on in the war, the sentiment changed completely, and some poets like Siegfried Sassoon even published articles in the Times condemning the war. Early in the war, my brother Hammer was mortally wounded at Gallipoli. 
I was devastated and took unnecessary risks trying to avenge his death, but I didn't care if I lived or died. They even awarded me the military cross in 1916. Were it not for the intervention of my dear friend, Robert Graves, I would have been up for court-martial for my article condemning the war. I could have been hung, but Robert managed to convince the review board I was suffering from shell shock. I was sent for treatment to Craig Lockhart Hospital in Edinburgh, where I met another poet, Wilfred Owen. Dear God, Craig Lockhart was a fearful place, almost as bad as the front itself. Most of the men there were shadows of the people they once were. The early treatment consisted of nothing better than barking orders at them, accusing them of cowardice and malingering. Later on, they introduced electric shock treatment, a truly barbaric process. The vast majority of the men were completely incapacitated by severe shaking, making them unable to walk or complete the simplest of tasks. Whenever there was a loud or sudden noise, these poor souls would fling themselves to the floor or under a bed, and many would have urinated or defecated. It was some time before a more caring treatment regime was introduced. I don't think I could have endured it had it not been for my friendship with Wilfred Owen. After treatment, I was returned to active service, first in Palestine and later in France, where I was wounded. Once again, I was sent home to England, where, thank God, I took no further part in the war. In January 1917, Wilfred Owen was posted to France. His first action was to hold a dugout in no man's land for 50 hours, whilst under heavy shelling. He suffered concussion in March, but was returned to the front line in April, and he wrote to his mother. My own dearest mother. Immediately after I sent my last letter, we were rushed up into the line. Twice in one day we went over the top, gaining both our objectives. Our company led the attack and, of course, lost a certain number of men. I had some extraordinary escapes from shells and bullets. Fortunately, there was no bayonet work, since the Hun ran before we got up to his trench. Never before has the battalion encountered such intense shelling as rained on us as we advanced in the open. The next day, Lieutenant Colonel Luxmore sent round this message. I was filled with admiration at the conduct of the battalion under heavy shellfire. The leadership of the officers was excellent, and the conduct of the men beyond praise. The reward we got for this was to remain in the line for twelve more days. For twelve days I did not wash my face, nor take off my boots, nor sleep a deep sleep. For twelve days we lay in holes, where at any moment a shell might put us out. I think the worst incident was one wet night when we lay up against the railway embankment. A big shell lit on the top of the bank just two yards from my head and blew me into the air. I passed the following days in a hole just big enough to lie in and covered with corrugated iron. Another officer lay opposite, in a similar hole covered with earth. I think the terribly long time we stayed unrelieved was unavoidable, yet it makes us feel bitterly towards those in England who might relieve us and will not. In August 1918, whilst being treated for shell shock, he wrote some of his most creative work. He was returned to active service in France and was awarded the Military Cross for bravery. Tragically, he was killed on the 4th of November whilst trying to lead his men across the Sambre Canal at Ors. This was just one week from the end of the war which ended on the 11th of November at 11 o'clock in the morning. The last British soldier to die was Private George Ellison, a regular soldier 
who had been in the army before the war started. It is so tragic that men were forced to fight right up until the end. George was shot and killed while scouting the outskirts of the Belgian town of Mons with just one hour left to go. It is ironic that his resting place in a cemetery near Mons is on the opposite side of the path, just a few steps from Private John Parr, the first British casualty. The number of casualties, both military and civilian, was about 40 million. 19 million dead and 21 million wounded. The futility of it all is expressed in Wilfred Owen's poem. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock need, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on bloodshot, all went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. Dolce et Decorum Est Pro Patria Mori was written by Joe Wells, directed by Fran Kirkham and produced by Mariel Runacre Temple, with Matt Kirby as the narrator, Mostyn James as Private John Parr, Bombardier Palmer and Private Archie Surfleet, Dougal Fulton as Private Jack Mudd and Sergeant Elmer Cotton, Joe Wells as Reverend Cyril Lomax, James Everett as Albert Brocklesby, Lance Corporal Abraham and Wilfred Owen, Fred Godward as Private Ronald Scurf and General Sidney Lawford, Jules Boot as Second Lieutenant Cooper and Rupert Brook, Colette Zacker as Joan Williams and Mrs. Cooper Clark, and Justin Palmer as Private Mowbray Meads and Siegfried Sassoon. Recording took place at Quince Studios and was engineered by Matt Walters for the Wireless Theatre Company. Visit www.wirelesstheatrecompany.co.uk for more free audio productions. And that was Dulce S. Decormesk Propatri Morti by the Wireless Theatre Company, wirelesstheatrecompany.co.uk, wirelesstheatre, 
company.co.uk, theatre with an R-E as I do spell it in Britain, closing out our series of ghosts. And we'll be changing motifs here on Radio Drama Revival next week. You're going to be looking at serialized audio dramas. Um, a lot of great long-running podcasts out there. We don't always feature uh, serials because it is a half-hour show here. tend to feature one-offs, but uh, we're going to uh, feature a couple that you may not have heard of and some that you have heard of and that you like, and we're bringing them back to sort of catch up, find out what they're up to. So do tune around for that through the month of March, and then um, we've got some really fun stuff lined up for you in April and May, and we will be getting to that soon. Of course, you can't wait that long. Do check out our blog and podcast, radiodramarevival.com. We've got news, reviews, and discussion up there. And as always, you can find us on iTunes. Search for Radio Drama Revival. That wraps it up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalge. Copyright of individual shows remains to their original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Greater Portland, Maine's community radio. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com as a labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. Mm-hmm.